We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21 today. 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 21. We've been going through the entire book of 1 John. It's taken longer than I thought because we had to slow down for some of these parts, I think. Um, but we've talked a lot about a number of different subjects, but especially the topic of love. You notice that the, the topic of love has come up again and again as we've gone through uh, the book of John. We've talked about love as the mark of the Christian. Uh, it's what should sh show clearly to the world that we follow Jesus, as that we love. We've talked about the calling specifically to love one another as we are loved by God. Well, here in this section of Scripture, we're going to sort of take it to another level. <laughs> um, so... I think in some ways 4, 7 to 21 is probably the heart, the heart of the letter of 1 John. And really, uh, we're going to go beyond what we've already talked about in love to, to a, a deeper level, a 201. If we've been on 101, mere Christianity, this might be a little deeper understanding of the love of God. And basically what he's going to tell us is that God is love. That's a, that's a powerful statement. Now he doesn't mean that God and love are the same thing. Uh, he doesn't mean you can't just take it and switch it and say love is God. That's sort of maybe some new age theology or new age teaching would be as if sort of the force out there of love when we actually care about each other and take care of one another, that's God. Uh, he's not sort of reducing the personality of God into just this general feeling. That's not the idea. But he is saying something profound about the connection between God and love. He's not saying God is loving. That's an adjective that describes God. Now, the Bible uses a lot of adjectives to describe God. God is holy, he's righteous, he's good, he's merciful, he's faithful, all throughout the Bible. He doesn't say God is loving, which is true. He says God is love. Meaning love is part of the very being, the very nature and character of God. As we go through this passage, you'll, you'll, say, you'll see what John does. He almost, he almost puts the two on, on the same level as to say, if we don't love, we don't have God. If we don't have God, we don't have love. The two are almost put as equivalent because it's such a characteristic of who God is. And if that's who God is, if that is one of the first and most important things we can say about God, that he is love, and we are his image bearers who reflect his image, then we're called to love one another without fear, as he is love. Look with me at 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 21, and we'll have it on the screen as well. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God, is, God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. 
And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So always as an outline in your bulletin, because God is love, we should love without fear. And there is an outline, as a breakdown as well. Our love reveals God's presence. Verses 7 to 10 and the end, 19 to 21. Love is God's defining character, 11 to 16. And then we'll look at how love casts out fear of punishment in 17 to 21. So look with me at first, 7 to 10, and then at the end, uh, 19 to 21. What does he say? Beloved. <laughs> his, his term to refer to them is loved ones. Uh, loved by John. And also, of course, loved by God. And the command here, let us love one another. Uh, he said that many times. He's going to say it again. Let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. He's already said that as well. The evidence that we have been born of God, that we belong to God, is that we love one another. And he says it in the negative. Anyone who does not love, then, does not know God. It's the clear fruit. It's the evidence that we do belong to God. And he grounds it in the idea that God is love it's his very being nine in this love in this the love of god is made manifest among us so god shows his love in a very tangible clear practical way he sends his only son into the world that we might live through him we needed a savior <laughs> that was our greatest need god shows the fact that he is love by giving us exactly what we need most by giving us his son the lord jesus 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And we talked about that word propitiation. A propitiation is a sacrifice that turns away wrath. That we were under judgment, and we're talking about a just and right judgment for sin. We deserved our uh, punishment for our sin, and that Christ comes as a propitiation, one who dies in our place and turns away the judgment of God. That demonstrates the ultimate love of God that he would send his son. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We follow the image of our creator. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. So God is spirit. Um, he's not made up of atoms and molecules and cells. And when you think about our eyes, our eyes are pretty amazing, but they're very limited. There's a lot of stuff we can't see, things that are too small and so forth. But our eyes, light refracts off of something physical. Uh, light hits something physical, and our eyes see that and sort of calculate that and, and let our brain know that there's something in front of us. God's not like that. He's spirit. He can't be seen. 
Why point that out? No one has ever seen God, semicolon. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What is he saying? But that, yes, though God is invisible, when his people love one another, in a sense we see him. Let's get down to 19. We love because he first loved us. Love starts with God in his very character. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's lying. <laughs> Again, the inconsistency. You can't say, I love God and hate your brother. Uh, your brother is made in God's image. You're made in God's image. If you're going to reflect the love of God, you need to love those whom he has made. He goes in further. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen can't love God whom he's not seen. If your brother's right in front of you, your brother in Christ, he means here, brother and sisters in Christ, if they're right in front of you and you can see their needs, you can see that they are hurting and they need someone to listen to them, uh, you can see that they're struggling financially and you could offer them a gift or whatever, if you can't help them right in front of you, how can you claim then to love God who is invisible and whom you can't see? This is the commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. John's point is, <laughs> when we love one another, God's presence is made known. Actually, Jesus said something very similar. He said, it is by your love that all men, all people will know that you're my, dis my disciples. It shows the very presence of God. It's kind of like a fingerprint. Everybody knows what a fingerprint is, right? Got a picture of a fingerprint. So uh, a fingerprint, usually when somebody's been in a room, a human being's been in a room, uh, they touch things, they leave a little bit of a mark in that room, and if you're, you know, CSI and, or, you know, whatever, you can sort of figure out these fingerprints, and of course, everybody knows this, every individual has a separate fingerprint that identifies them, and nobody else, nobody shares the same fingerprint, which is pretty amazing, seven billion people on this planet, and none of them are the same. In fact, as I understand it, for as long as, you know, there's another 7 billion people in the future, and none of them will have the same fingerprint even as we have. In a sense, the fingerprint of God <laughs> that shows when he's been in a room, that shows where he has been, where his presence is, is Christian love. That's what shows that God is at work. In one sense, friends, people should, should, who, are, who are outsiders, who don't believe in Jesus yet, if they come to church, their reaction should be, these people are weird. <laughs> these people are strange. They're, they're abnormal. They're atypical. They're, they're out of this world. There's something very, very different about these people and what they're like. And not because of the way they dress or the way they talk or the songs they sing or something like that, but by the way they love one another. It, it should be so strange to the outsider. They should be asking the question, what is their secret motive here? <laughs> why do they actually, why, what, what are they really after? And of course, this, the motive should not be for anything that we gain in this world ultimately, but to please our Heavenly Father and because we genuinely and actually care about people. God's presence, though He is invisible, is seen physically by the way we love one another. Let, let, me, let me just give you some more very practical examples of what I mean. How does a church show uh, the love of God? How does it show the presence of God? Here's one major way. 
when we don't make a big deal about differences that the world makes a big deal about. Okay, when we basically cross lines that the world is very hesitant to cross. When a church says we are united together in Christ regardless of our race or ethnicity or personalities or age group or social class, we're united in Christ and we're one. We're together. Think about that. You know, out of that group of, of uh, different differences I just mentioned, you know what they say is actually the hardest one for a church to break? Social class. Maybe surprising for you. That it's very difficult. Usually, wealthier people go to church, sit in the same church. Middle class people go to church in the same church. And those who are poor go to church in the same church, uh, which I think is a shame. It shouldn't be that way. Uh, one thing that should stand out to the world is look at the way through all of these differences these people come together. I've said this before, but I don't know any other reason why this particular group of 100 or so people here um, would get together, other than the fact that we all love Jesus. And if you're visiting here, we're glad you're here too. If, if you don't love Jesus yet, we're glad you're part of us. But nevertheless, what brings us together is not these worldly differences or some worldly similarity, I should say. What brings us together is that we love Jesus and we want to worship him with one another. There's another very practical, tangible way. Um, generosity generosity when you put your money where your mouth is <laughs> that makes a big difference uh, it's easy to talk a big game um, and talk about serving the Lord but are you willing to actually sacrifice your own to help others and I don't mean just I'm mean, certainly tithing and giving but all but just seeing somebody else in the congregation who has a need and you're willing to actually sacrifice and to help them I've said this before, but that if you've got every other area of, of the Christian life pretty well in order, you know, you, you're, you're praying every day, and you're sharing the gospel with the non-believers on a regular basis, you study the Bible for a half hour every morning, you're a good husband, you're a good father, but you don't give a dime to anyone, I would say you are spiritually sick. Something's wrong. It's an area of your life that's not, not in order. One more. Here's where we're, the world, I think, sees this Christian love and the presence of God. When we want to relieve suffering, when we want to relieve suffering, and that's all types of suffering, when we look at the, our neighbor and we see that there are hungry people in our city, and we say, let's feed them, as we do, every Sunday at 2 o'clock, and, and throughout the week as well. There are people who are cold in these New England winters, and we want to make sure everyone that needs a jacket will get a jacket as best we can. And eternal suffering. We recognize that one day we will all stand before an eternal God and answer to Him, and those who have no Savior will end up being condemned. And friends, if you care about only one and not the other, I think you're, you're misguided. Where's Christian love? You should say, I want to help people right here and right now to relieve suffering, here and around the world. But I also care about a greater eternal suffering that is to come. Because I believe that there is a God, and there is this God is righteous, and we will all answer to him. And so I want people to hear this good news so that they could be saved. Love does both. We seek to relieve suffering because we genuinely love people. But John bases this all on God's character, on his defining characteristic, 11 to 16. Look what we see here. 
uh, beloved, if God so loved us, we also love, ought to love one another. Excuse me, it should, should start at 13. My mistake. 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And if that's confusing to you, understand that the spirit of God is the presence of God with his people. Yes, God is in heaven. And yes, in one sense, God is everywhere. There's no place in this entire universe or any universe that could ever exist in which God would not be. But he talks about his very special presence with his people. That's the Holy Spirit. He abides in us. Not in a place that you can reach with a scalpel. Uh, not in a physical place, but within your very soul. 14, and we have seen and testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That's our confession. The evidence that God abides in us by his Spirit is that we confess this gospel. We confess that the Lord has come. Verse 15, whoever confesses Jesus is the Son of God. God abides in him and he in God. It, it can't just stay within us. <laughs> if the Spirit dwells within us, he, he, it comes out of our mouths. We have to confess that Jesus is indeed the Lord. 16, so we have come to know, to believe the love that God has for us. And he says it again, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. We are united with him forever. Guys, let's talk a little bit more about this idea that, that God is love. If you had to summarize who God is and you only had one word to do it, this wouldn't be a bad one to describe who he is. You know, when somebody, somebody has a funeral and we, um, we just did a big funeral this week. Um, the reason why I'm, st I'm standing behind a garden right now <laughs> is because of King Davis's uh, funeral. Um, and uh, these are all flowers from his funeral. They're beautiful. And uh, they fit because he, really, he wanted a very happy, cheerful celebration of life. He did not want it to be a gloomy time. So he bought, I think he probably requested nice, colorful flowers. But what do we do at a funeral? We, we sort of try our best to, to summarize who a person is. We do that with the obituary right? We want to, we have, we have one page to try to summarize an entire life. It's not easy to do. Um, in the case of, of King Davis, I don't know if anyone had a chance to read his obituary, three pages, all right? Not one page. So uh, it was one of the longest obituaries I ever see because he was so involved here in the city of Haverhill, went into this, all the same. In fact, he said specifically in his uh, directions for the funeral, uh, don't read my obituary. <laughs> and I, I get it. I would take up, you know, a good 10 minutes of, of the time for the funeral. But what would they say at your funeral? Imagine there's a celebration of life and your name's at the end. How would, how would they summarize who you are? Here's what I would hope they would say at mine. Rick was, is, a child of God by God's grace and grace alone. He's a loving husband. I hope that's true. He was a good dad. He was a faithful pastor. Everything else is icing on the cake beyond that. <laughs> if I can get those four things, I'm happy. I'm good. I know I got the first one. I'm working on the other three for the rest of my life. How would they summarize you? If you had to summarize God, not an easy thing to do. There's so much you could say about him. And the Bible says a lot about him. About his holiness and his righteousness and his justice, his goodness, his faithfulness, his mercy, 
his compassion. But friends, John would say at the very top of that list, we would say this, God is love. It's his character. It's his being. It's not just what he does. It's who he is. When I think about all of our fall ministries, and we're getting started next week is Rally Day, and we have a lot going on and excited about. We have, of course, uh, Kid Town starting up, and we got all Kid Town volunteers. We had our training and our nursery workers, and man, I love our nursery workers. Imagine again somebody who says, I'm going to give up the, the only hour and a half we meet for together, you know, all together. I'm going to give up my time worshiping, and I'm just going to spend it taking care of everyone's babies. <laughs> I love that. I love the servant heart of that, friends. We have, of course, youth ministry we're working on. Be praying about that uh, going forward. We have community groups, which are not starting next week. They're starting up in October. We have a little bit of time before that. We have this wonderful missions fundraiser coming up, uh, hoping to help our uh, missionaries that we send out from our own congregation to get a Jeep, use that to get into the sort of uh, the, the more rural regions and, and get the gospel out there. Friends, why are we doing all this? And I, and I hope this is our motive, and I think it is. Because God is love, we want to show God to each other and to the world. If God is love, we want to love as he has loved us and let his character be known. Because we love our kids and we love our babies. And because we love one another, we want to get together and study in community groups. And because we love our missionaries and we love the fact the gospel is going forth to the nations because we love the nations. That's why we're doing all of this. I hope that is the motive behind everything we do, that we're showing people that God is love. You know, as a church, we can get caught up in so many different things. Uh, we can make it about so many different sort of conflicts or superficial things. Uh, churches all the time, there's, there's lots of different infighting. Uh, by God's grace, I, I feel like things are very much at peace right now, so I'm not, you're a visitor, I'm not saying anything, nothing is really happening right now, it's a very peaceful time. Um, but friends, we can miss the, the, the forest for the trees. We can miss the big picture. Uh, there's a world out there that needs to know this about God, that God is love. And he loves us enough to send his son as a propitiation for our sins. And that those who receive him, he abides in us and we in him forever. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's let the world see and know that God is love. And then thirdly, love casts out the fear of punishment. Casts out the fear of punishment. Look what he said in 17. By this is love perfected. So there's not, it's not just a question of do you have love or do you not have love? Uh, you can have love in different degrees. Once we have the love of God in us, we're, we're growing in that love. We're seeking to be perfected in that love. There are degrees in which we reflect the image of of God. By this is love perfected with us that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world. If we if we grow in love, we're more perfected in love, the less and less we fear that final day of judgment. Why? Because the more we grasp that God loves us, the less we worry that we will be condemned. Friends, there can be an assurance, a confidence, a full confidence that we belong to him. I'll talk more about that in just a minute here. 18, there is no fear in love. There's no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. 
fear has to do with punishment. So the type of fear he's talking about here is particularly a fear of punishment. Now, you can't see this in the English as well, but the Greek word there used for punishment, kolossin, is used only two times, in two contexts in the entire New Testament. Uh, it's used here, and it's used in reference to the sheep and the goats. And the goats are sent to eternal punishment. And the reference there is clearly not talking about a fatherly discipline, which Hebrews tells us we should have a healthy fear of, uh, of when it comes to God, a fatherly discipline, but a fear of damnation, of being condemned, of going to hell. And he's saying for those in Christ, when our, as more, our, this love is more and more perfected, this fear of punishment is removed. Now, you might still ask the question, I thought we're supposed to fear God. Because the Bible tells us all over the place, fear of the Lord is a good thing. In fact, Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You can't even start being wise until you begin to recognize God and to have a certain level of fear of Him. Doesn't that contradict what John is saying here? Uh, no, because there's fear and there's fear. <laughs> and, and they're not the same. Uh, there is a healthy sense of fear, a, a reverence, a respect for something. Um, that is not the same as I am fearful of punishment. Uh, let me give you an example. There's a hurricane, as you know, hitting Florida right now. Uh, nature, nature can be a very dangerous thing. And when we don't take it serious enough, that's when we get ourselves into a lot of trouble. Nature's beautiful. I love nature. It's God's creation. But there is a healthy fear. Now, the other day, my, my wife and I went for a walk on the beach, so we're way, of course, north of Florida. Uh, but the, the ocean, even up here, is being stirred up. I got a picture of this as well. So, that's Salisbury Beach, and the, the, I mean, it doesn't even give a real sense of what it was like. There was actually a Coast Guard helicopter flying right above us, probably checking to see if any, sorry, lack of a better word, idiot is out there on a boat during this type of storm and getting him out of there, or if anyone's even trying to swim or surf or anything in this type of weather and getting everyone out of the water. Because even up here, it is dangerous in the water, at least it was when we attended. There's a healthy respect, love, for nature that it, I think can be described as fear. When it comes to God, <laughs> we don't have to fear judgment. We don't have to fear hell. But we love and we respect Him deeply. Friends, I do think this speaks to the issue of assurance. We've talked about this earlier in John. We can be sure, certain, fully confident that when we die, or on the day Christ returns, we will be with him. Let me put it this way. If I died today, on my ride home from, this, from church, our gathering, I have no doubt, none, that I will be in the presence of God. Now, for some of you, you might say, that's arrogant, Rick. <laughs> Pastor Rick, that's a, isn't that an arrogant thing to say? No, because it's not based on me. It's not based on the fact that I'm a good person and I've tried hard and I've done all this good work to heaven in the big scheme of things. It's based on the fact that our Savior is sufficient to remove the judgment that I deserve over my life. John is saying, as love is perfected, so is our, our sense of the love of God that removes this sense of judgment.
I also say this has to do with living life with fear, uh, living life with worry. You know, worry is just another name for fear. Did you know that? <laughs> Think about it. When you say, I- I'm worried about my kids, you know what you're saying? I'm afraid that something bad might happen to my kids. That's what you're saying. When you say, I'm worried about my job, what do you mean? I'm afraid I might lose my job. I'm afraid things aren't going to go well in my job. Worry and fear are basically the same thing. And what does Jesus say? Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, drink, what you will wear, because God provides all these things. Seek first his kingdom, and these will be given to you as well. And God wants us to live lives that are confident of his love. He loves you. He will provide for you. He's going to take care of you. Maybe you're in the middle of a valley and things are not good. But in the end, you can trust that God's love is real and true. He's with you. Perfect love casts out fear. Our love reveals the very presence of God. God is invisible, but when we love one another, his fingerprints are evident. Love is God's defining character. God is love. Love casts out fear of punishment. You know, I realized, um, somebody came up to me after my last sermon, in which we talked about love. I said, Rick, what is love? You know, I never really spent any time defining it <laughs> exactly. What exactly is love? Now, here's my definition of love as we come to a close. Love is genuine care or concern or compassion or empathy. It is real commitment. And it is admiration or emotion. Let me put that together. First of all, it's, it's genuine concern. It's not, I, I'm going to show like to you because I can get something out of you. <laughs> I'm going to be nice to you and show favor. I'm going to use you because it benefits me. That's not love. I think we'd all agree with that. Love is to actually look at another person, another human being, and say, I actually genuinely care about you. I'm, I'm really concerned about your welfare. Um, I'm empathizing with you as another human being. That's love. It's more than that, though. It's commitment. Right? If somebody says, you know, I feel that way, I empathize with you today, but the next day comes and say, you know what, I couldn't care less about you. I think we'd all say, that's not real love. <laughs> love has a commitment component to it, right? It's not just that we care and that we concern, but that there's something ongoing about that. It's not an ebb and flow, where one day I care and the next day I don't, and then maybe the next day I care again. Love has a consistency to it. And I throw in the emotion part, because I think we all know instinctively that love is also emotional. Um, Sometimes you will hear in the evangelical world, love is a choice, it's not an emotion. Baloney. <laughs> Baloney. That is not true. Um, if you're married, uh, say that to your spouse on your anniversary. Uh, you won't get a good response. I love you, meaning I choose to be with you even though I have no feelings for you. That's not going to go far when it comes to love. A genuine, actual admiration, a genuine, genuine actual feeling of, of favor towards another. When we say that God loves us, we look at Christ. Christ genuinely cares about us. The reason why he entered into this world to save us and redeem us is because we actually do matter to him. There's a genuine concern for us. 
a genuine compassion. That's a commitment. And that's the ultimate commitment for Christ, isn't it? Uh, he didn't just take on flesh and then get his job done and then end it. He took on human, human flesh for all eternity as he's resurrected from the dead in the right hand of the Father. He loves us and he will love us forever. When we say this, this is not a cold, calculated decision. I think we genuinely have the smile of God in Christ. Pray with me. Our gracious Heavenly Father, perhaps there are some here who are wrestling with this very thing. And maybe they are struggling with looking at you as creator and, and seeing an angry judge or a creator who's upset with us or is indifferent to us, doesn't really care one way or another what we do. We thank you so much, Lord, that God is love. That when you look down and you see your children, those who are in Christ, clothed in his righteousness, who have received this propitiation from our sins, you actually genuinely love us. That we have your smile and your favor. Father, I do pray for those here maybe who don't yet know the Lord Jesus. Uh, they haven't been brought into a relationship, this relationship of love yet with him. Help them to see you clearly. Help them to see that the God who made us is the God who gave us his son. And the God who gave us his son loves us enough to redeem us and keep us in committed love forever. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.